big BAFTA day of it for Irish films and plenty more besides on your radio today. This is Playback Daily. I'm Carol Moran and here's what you might have missed. Those doctors and those ambulances and, and firemen, Brian Stolomorden and member of Jenny's sister, <laughs> came in and said, Jenny is gone. Gone where? But what I realised was that every time I would go and speak in a school, a community centre, to a drugs project, that I realised I was stepping back in physiologically to an energy. Well, I'll tell you what it is, Ray Darcy. (laughs) It's one of those things that you do because it's what you love. You know, if you can manage to do something that you love, how lucky are you? And we'll start on the live line. Liam Melia called Joe to talk about the issue of road deaths and the loss of his wife, Jenny, in 2007. Oh, yeah, tw- uh, 28th of February, 2007. Mm. Um, 20 past nine in the morning. Um, the daughter to school, myself and Jenny, we okay. usually go for a walk every day. Bar Sundays. We just and it's a five kilometer walk around Kilcormac. And uh, just dropped her to school. Yeah. Five minutes later. Um we're walking just past the uh, Philly's local filling station and uh, just walking side by side and chatting and I yeah, yeah. kind of it was a bit windy and it's kind of had a head down, you know, kind of into the wind and just looked up and uh, this car in front of me and I just shouted, where's this car going or what's it doing there? That was it. The time I left the house to the happened five minutes, less than five minutes, that's it. Right. And uh, the only thing I remember was someone shouting, um, you're okay. And uh, I was, I asked where Jenny was, said she's gone to the ambulance and brought to tell more. And so the two, the two of you were, the two of you were hit by the car. Yeah, yeah. Jenny and, was on my inside, okay. and I was on the outside. And, and do you remember even the car approaching you? No, oh. I just looked up. We were walking on the hard shoulder, and I just looked up, and the car was in front of me. And Sorry, you were on the ground. Ground, and you, you were on, you were on the ground at this stage. Yeah, when the car hit us, we. I was lying and, and someone shouted, you're okay, you're okay. And, and I just said, where was Jenny? And said, they were gone in ramblings. <laughs> but that was, there was doctors and there was ambulances yeah. and, and firemen. Brian Solomore then and remember Jenny's sister <laughs> came in and said, Jenny is gone. I said, gone where? Right. And they told me. And then the, the wheeler in beside me and 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 and, the, 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 and she uh, she had died instantly from what you yeah, said. Yeah, that's what they told me. Told me she died instantly because I asked in the hospital before my sister came in where oh, was Jenny. Said she's critical, and then Jenny's sister came in and told me. And of course, I said, I said, gone where, you know, and she told me, and that was it. And the the car, you be, the car was there when you regained consciousness for a few minutes. Did you? Read? I don't know where the car went. Okay. Did you know you had been hit by a car? I didn't until I asked. I thought I was driving my own car. Yeah. Okay. You said what happened? Yeah, I said what happened. I said, "Where's my car?" And 
I think my brother in law said to me, he says, Sure, your car's at home. Yeah. And so I say, I was, we were six inches beside one another. I got a belt on the, the right leg. I was I was out of work for 14 months. And uh, I had to get a hip replaced with no, shortly, so. And Joe asked Liam about the court case. And was there was there a court case, Liam? It was, yeah. yeah the court case after about a year, and um, he was put off the road, I think, for life and, and a suspended sentence. You know, yeah. but whatever he got or whatever he didn't get, it wasn't going to bring Jenny back. Yeah, and did he did he have, did he offer any form of explanation as to he why? Couldn't remember. He couldn't remember. No. Couldn't remember. You know, sometimes if you got said if you got a blowout or passed yeah, out, yeah, or they don't had, know. I'd heard bad news or got yeah. distracted or whatever. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. But, but, you, but you, you never heard. That was the only thing that I was, you know, what happened. You know, I sent. Did did I do? Did we do something wrong? Yeah, yeah. You know. And you didn't. It was the same way you walked every single day. Every day. Yeah. Every day for years. You know, so I was saying you go for a walk to get fit. And everything bad happened to you. And then, Liam, I see from your note here, it wasn't the first car tragedy that... Oh, Jenny. We, we yeah. had... So we got... I married Jenny in 1982. Yeah. She was 18, I was 20. Okay. I got married on 31st of March, 1982. At the time, Jenny was about... Was a month, month and a half pregnant at the time, and of that August of that year, thirtieth of August, they were coming through Trahan. It's a little village, not far from here. So, mm-hmm. after a visit in um, the hospital in Portiuncula for monthly yeah. checkup, and that she was about, about seven, seven and a half months pregnant at the time, and were coming through Trahan, and a van ran into them at the cross there in Trahan. And uh, she lost the baby. Oh, God. So, at the time, I was working, actually, in, in, in the power station in Pool Bag. Now, I wasn't working the ASB at the yeah. time, but I was working. And um, it happened at 11 o'clock in the morning. And um, I, I was down then. I went to, she was in intensive care for... for um, Three or four days and that, and, and, and the baby was stillborn. Was, was, was mm-hmm. when 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 I collected it, I remember when I was brought in, I was told to bring in a, in a white coffin with me. So I brought her home. We buried her up in the local cemetery. So in a split second, two car accidents in a split second. Split second. Your, your life has changed irrevocably. <laughs> And that yeah. the, the children in the background are they your grandchildren, Liam? Yeah, yeah. Okay. No. Monday a week. How oh, good man! Give me flour, mind them. And did they ever meet? Did they ever meet their granny Jenny? No, no, oh. no. Sure, in his only, in his only, won't be three till till um, May. And and I have another granddaughter, Emily. She was she won't be three till November. Oh, yeah. You know. So Jenny was a young woman when she was killed. Yeah, forty-three. Oh God. Oh, God. Okay, and it yeah. was, it was a as say, the end of February. It was half nine or ten o'clock in the morning. So it was twenty past nine in the morning. Yeah, 
because yeah. we always went out for a walk with yeah. my daughter Celine to, to National School, which the National School was right across the road from my house. And we walked and took us took about an hour to walk around uh, five kilometres, you know. And I've never walked it since. Well, I'm not able to walk it though. You would, you wouldn't, you haven't walked it since. No. Oh. But you pass by the where it happened every day. And heartbreaking as it is to hear Liam's story, he wanted to make a point about the dangers on the roads. And the point I'm making is, is that all these accidents face tragedies and they take away a lot of lives, but the only thing that they don't take away is, is memories. Yeah, yeah. can never take away them. And, and I, I'm good friends of, of um, Donna Price. She's involved there in the Road Safety Association there. And, okay. Uh, she does have a every November. She, she does have a thing down in Bloomfield about uh, road traffic victims and that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I tell you, when you go in there and see the hundreds of of yeah. pictures, yeah. quite frames with people smiling, but yeah. and them are alive. Yeah. Yeah. Um, my own brother uh, would have been. He was killed in a car crash. He would have been fifty-seven today. Um, so, so every God of mercy on me is twenty five, Aiden. But um, yeah. every every family, every family, absolutely. So we just have yeah. to be have to be uh, extra. And in his in his case, it was a mechanical fault of the company van. But that's that's a long time. Yeah. Ago now. But the, the but biggest it, problem I see, Joe, and I'm sorry for stopping you. No, no, that's They're going around texting and driving. Yeah, I know. I know. That's the worst thing. I know. That's where that started. Yeah, this this issue started. Yeah, and there's, there's lorry drivers, there's car drivers. There. Yeah. And we, we know, you know when they're looking down they're, that, they're, that they're texting. Yeah. yeah. I don't know, there should be some point to a car that you can't receive text or give out text. You know, yeah. technology going around. But, um, well, let's try and put something to people's heads in the meantime. In the yeah. meantime. Uh, name, okay. Yeah. Okay. Well, God, God rest, Jenny. Kind regards to you. And, and your baby, um, are they resting together now? Yeah, yeah. Baby. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah. And That's okay. Liam on the live line with Joe Duffy. And on the Ryan Tuberty show, the issue of burnout as Jacinta Ardern's stepping down as Prime Minister of New Zealand. Well, my eye was caught really this morning by the news of Jacinda Ardern uh, resigning, or at least announcing her, uh, the fact that she's going to step down as Prime Minister of New Zealand. She's a very young woman, uh, 42 years old. And I would have thought had a lot more to give um, in terms of political contribution. Now, uh, the piece I read this morning to try and catch up and it was in the New York Times, which was saying that uh, New Zealand has its own issues in terms of the, like everywhere else, the economy, but also uh, violence and so forth. Um, And that these were, you know, conspiring maybe to encourage her to maybe just say, I've had enough. But that's the rather superficial political look at things. I think she she gave a very engaging, compelling speech about why she chose to leave. And this really chimes with what we were talking about in some regards at the beginning of the week with Jennifer Bray about her piece regarding women getting into politics and why would you bother. But it also uh, chimes with this idea of burnout, which is not gender specific. It's just simply where you've had enough. You've had enough of bad decisions. You've had enough of no support. You've had enough of of mediocre people um, making poor decisions in, in your life or what have you. And you just say, enough, I'm out. And that's what she's she's clearly just said, I, I can't take it anymore. It's Politics is too, it's too intense. Um, it's, it's 
just it's it's taking its toes, getting under my skin. You know, she's going, no, there's better there are better options in life. It could be a post-COVID uh, catharsis. There is that too. You see people doing it. You see a lot of people in public life, public figures saying, I'm out. Uh, dropping the mic, literally in some cases, and saying, why would I bother? And I think she's done that. So what I'm going to do is play a few clips from her speech, because I think this is this is really instructive, that one of the, she'd be one of the most powerful leaders, uh, probably in the world, arguably. She had, a, to, for most people, a very good uh, premiership. Uh, but here's a flavour of some of the things she said uh, about retiring. Today I'm announcing that I will not be seeking re-election. And that my term as Prime Minister will conclude no later than the 7th of February. This has been the most fulfilling five and a half years of my life, but it has also had its challenges. But I am not leaving because it was hard. Had that been the case, I probably would have departed two months into the job. I am leaving because with such a privileged role comes responsibility. The responsibility to know when you are the right person to lead and also when you are not. I know what this job takes and I know that I no longer have enough in the tank to do it justice. Amazing. Out of fuel, just had enough and if I stayed on, I'd be wrecked and I wouldn't be able to give what I have for you and therefore I am out. That, that takes guts. But also, uh, she commented uh, articulately uh, on the life of being a politician about public service. Firstly, uh, I'm a politician who is first and foremost human. And so leadership means being willing to step back and recognise when actually it's time for someone else to do the job. And that I'm not alone in the fact that politicians and the ones that I work with at least uh, are constantly thinking about how they can best serve. They're constantly thinking about what they can do on behalf of their communities. They're not all there for power. They're not all there uh, to be in the front seat. They're there to be in a team that makes a difference. Mm, and I have no doubt a lot of politicians listening in this morning will be going, yeah, you know, we didn't get into this for anything but, you know, that sort of thing. And yet uh, the world of politics tends to be uh, belittled a lot, sometimes for, for the right reasons, but not not always. Um, the other thing that she said she was she was going to leave for was uh, family reasons. And, you know, she has a, a very young child, which she, she had in office. And... Um, a partner who she clearly loves, as you will uh, because see when you hear this. Beyond that, I have no plan, no next steps. All I know is that whatever I do, I will try and find ways to keep working for New Zealand. And that I'm looking forward to spending time with my family once again. Arguably, they're the ones that have sacrificed the most out of all of us. And so to Neve, Mum is looking forward to being there when you start school this year. And to Clark, let's finally get married. And off she goes. Uh, she'll be stepping down on the 7th of February and that is the end of that. But there's a lot in that speech, a lot to be uh, admired, a lot to be uh, discussed. Uh, uh, and looking at Sean O'Driscoll's piece today in the Irish Daily Mail about the Cork Southwest TD, Holly Kearns, who has said that she might never have stood for election had she known the level of abuse she would face. I mean, that's just appalling and really sad uh, that there are creatures out there attacking her, trolling her uh, and other female politicians, as we heard from Jennifer earlier on in the week. And, and to hear she, what, what she's described in this piece as the 33-year-old Social Democrats TD 
uh, revealed a persistent online stalker began to show up at her home, including when she was in Dublin for work, uh, leaving her absolutely uh, terrified. She initially handled it herself, told the stalker to go away. He re- appeared to have a romantic interest in her, and but his behaviour was threatening and she called the guardie. Another man uh, cut out pornographic photos with the word Holly in the caption and sent them to her. I mean, that is just repulsive behaviour. Um, and again, it ties in with what we spoke about uh, not only on Monday, uh, but not Tuesday, but on Monday when we spoke about uh, the prevalence of uh, porn and online porn and in, in young people's lives, men's lives, let's face it, in particular. Um, and so if you take the case of Holly Kearns, if you take the case of a lot of the women that Jennifer Bray spoke to for her piece, uh, and then you hear what Jacinda Dern has been saying, uh, you, you just despair for the future of politics if younger women aren't going to get involved because then the whole place is, is uh, it's, it's a skew and it's not representative and it's not right and um, it's, it's not fair. So here's hoping we can get on top of all of this uh, as, a, as a society because there are too many creatures, too many creatures making too much noise and they need to be dealt with appropriately and swiftly. And these... Uh, companies that facilitate them need to have some scintilla of uh, responsibility and accountability because it's out of control and it's got to stop. Ryan Tuberty in the morning. Now, the issue of burnout came up after the stepping down of New Zealand Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern. And on Today with Claire Byrne, Senator Lynn Ruan was speaking about her own experience of burnout. People will know you as a politician, a campaigner, an author, an advocate. But it got to the point where the mental pressure, the workload, it was overwhelming for you. And you've spoken about this. You realised that you were experiencing something called burnout. Will we go back to that moment or what your life was like in the lead up to that moment where you realised this was a problem? Yeah, I think there was a few moments, I suppose, throughout the last few years where it peaks and you think there might be something wrong and you shove it back down. So there was never one big moment. For me, it was like I'm having repeated moments here where I don't feel like I have anything left in me. Um, I remember... Um, which I didn't speak about in the magazine piece in the Independent the weekend, but I do remember being born out once before I ended up in hospital when I was in my, would you believe, my early 20s, which is interesting because you think, you know, you're early 20s, you're invincible, you're full of energy, you're full of life. But I ended up in hospital and they were checking me for everything from glandular fever to all sorts just because of the symptoms that I was explaining, the pain I felt my body was in. My headaches were so bad. They were like cluster headaches every single day. I couldn't shut down. I couldn't slow down. But I was still working at this huge productive level. I was, you know, running drugs projects in the community. I was opening on Christmas Day because I didn't want people to go without Christmas dinner that were on their own. It was just full on. And... By the end of that, they said, we actually just think you're exhausted, you know, and at first... This, this was back in your 20s. That was in my early 20s. They didn't say born out at the time, but then when I was looking at how I was this time, I was like, wow, that that's similar to what I went through in my early 20s. And I wonder, is there some sort of, there's something here that I need to actually address and look at? Mm-hmm. Um, I think potentially there's something within my character or my makeup that means that I work to a high productive level for large periods of time and then I may crash and lose focus and find it hard. So it's it got to the stage in the last, say, year, 
year and a half that I'd ignored some signs for a while. But then I started to notice that I wasn't unhappy, but I wasn't happy either. You know, so things that would normally give me me joy, I wasn't feeling joy, you know. And my therapist, uh, Jimmy Judge, he's amazing. He said to me, Lynn, can you tell me a moment where you've felt some joy? And I was sitting there and I found it really, really, really hard. And um, what I actually, the example I did give was, I think I'd lost, I, I'd kind of, um, I'd, I'd kind of snapped back at somebody um, in work that I felt was just doing really, you know, crappy things or saying crappy things. And I was like, there's something wrong because I actually felt joy in the fact that I... That you snapped. That I snapped somebody. back. But that was a re- that was me going, I actually got something out of that release and there's something wrong there. Yes. Because, well, you, and you realised that there was yes. something wrong there, which is a, a good <laughs> thing. But what was, what were you doing? Like, what was your work and your home life and what was the, what was going on at this time when you realised oh, this isn't, I can't sustain this? Well, I think, um, I, I think when I broke down in the chamber um, last year, speaking about uh, drug use in Ireland and speaking about the impact on families within my own community and I'm 20 odd years discussing this, so there's no reason why I would be losing, um, I suppose, my ability to talk about it 20 odd years on. But I, I stood in the chamber and I cried and I couldn't stop the tears and I had to sit back down. I had to sit down and I had to ask to come back in in a few minutes and I had to really fight past the emotion. And what I realised then was that for years I've just pushed on with workload, with family life, all the different extracurricular stuff that I do. So I don't only do what's in the chamber. I still organise community initiatives. I still try and set up programmes. I still help people that are struggling in addiction. I'm the chair of the Canal Communities Local Drugs and Al- Alcohol Task Force. You know, I help develop Project Sums and Tala. There's, there's all these different things that mm-hmm. I just naturally you, want to do. And you speak at schools and so on. and at different schools different and events community well. centres and then people want me to speak about trauma. And what I realised is that even though I psychologically have come to terms with the different traumatic experiences that I've had in my life, I didn't think about them all the time. I don't think about the sexual violence I experienced. I don't, I, I do think about the friends that I've lost, but I don't think about them in this obsessive way that caused me psychological pain. Um, but what I realised was that every time I would go and speak in a school, a community centre to a drugs project or in, at a big conference, that I realised I was stepping back in physiologically to an energy. So, you know, it's true what they say. Like, I, you know, I remember when I read the book around the body keeps the score. Well, well, it does. And I know it does because I feel on an intellectual level, I've moved on from many things, but my body kept going into some sort of reaction to speaking, thinking and talking constantly so, about trauma. Every time you're talking about what you went through in your life, the difficult moments, your body is going back to that place. I think so. And reliving yeah. that trauma. Yes. And then all of that builds up to the point that you got to when you just thought, I, I have, I have to no stop. tolerance even. I felt like I had no tolerance, you know, like my tolerance to even listen to the end of somebody's sentence was becoming difficult, you know, to concentrate, to listen. It's like my head had six million things that were, were buzzing around. And, and I think like I think I think I'm not I, I'm not being triggered by trauma as such. Do you know what I mean? I think. My body is just keeps reminding me that this is an energy you've tried to move on from. You've done a lot of work on yourself. And I think that's only I think that's only one part of it. I do think that um, the pressures of political life are quite big for somebody, I suppose, like me, who sees themselves as a community worker. Mm -hmm. So I still carry that commitment and loyalty to a community that needs support and help. But I don't fully 
uh, step away from that. And Claire asked Lynn about switching off from the pressures. Spoken about your head buzzing with six million things and not being able to listen to the end of someone's sentence. What else was going on? Were you able to sleep? Were you able to switch off from work in the evenings? Yeah, it was hard. I can switch off from work, but it didn't mean that I was switched off, you know, if that makes sense. So I was caught in this cycle of trying to relax. Oh, I'm trying to relax. So I wouldn't have notifications on my phone. I wouldn't be reading Twitter. I'd be trying to read my books. I know things are really bad when I can't concentrate and get to the end of a page on a book. I know that there's something really gone awry with my capacity, mental capacity, because I love reading. Uh, And that was one sign. I can't read. I can't Mm -hmm. read. I'm really struggling to read. Um, And I write a lot. So I write every day and I was finding even that difficult to do. And I love that. So all those things were kind of been ha- like disrupted disrupted and telling yourself to calm down it's like telling yes. telling yourself to relax <laughs> is like telling somebody else to calm down just yeah. it, like it just doesn't work yeah but you I mean it's it's one thing to realise that you have a problem but it's another thing to act on it and I think it's really impressive you know you were saying this in the piece in, in Life magazine in the Sunday Independent that you sat down with your team and you said we need to mm. reorganise this diary now and I need you to start cancelling things mm. that's a big step yeah, well, I mean, I, I said I, I was crying in the chamber, but I mean, there was times they saw me crying in the office too, you know, and uh, they knew, they knew themselves and they were like, you know, it was always me. Oh God, I can't say no to that or I shouldn't. Oh, that school is a really disadvantaged school and they could really do with me going in and maybe talking about things. So I would layer and layer and layer all these pressures and responsibilities on myself as to why I should go in and do these things. So... They, my staff were never kind of saying, you need to go and do this. It was always me. But what we needed to do was they needed to not tell me for a while what invitations were coming in. I needed to not look at the emails and I needed to allow them to actually, you know, go through all the requests and kind of filter it for me because ultimately I would end up saying yes, even when I was exhausted. And it was really hard to make that decision because you don't want to let people down. But Claire, the second I made it and the second I wasn't getting requests and emails, something dropped inside me. I felt calm mm-hmm. and I felt a little bit of relief. Now, I still knew I had lots to do in terms of putting lots of different things in place in my life. Um, one thing that I noticed I wasn't able to do is that a lot, of, and I've never been able to do this, but I'm noticing that more as I get older, is just do little things in the house, you know, like, you know, like fill the dishwasher or like I could do a big, huge six big massive projects in a day and then someone would say to me at home you wouldn't make us a bit of dinner and I go make a dinner or somebody would ask for a cup of tea and you'd swear they were after asking me something huge so I couldn't do small tasks but my life was being dominated by big massive tasks and I seemed seemed to step into them more easily than just the mundane and I just remember lying in bed one night not being able to sleep. Now, when I fall asleep, I can sleep, but just that process of falling to sleep can be can Takes be difficult, time. you know. But I remember lying there going, I just want to do some boring things. Like, I just want to <laughs> actually just make the dishwasher dinner. was calling you. <laughs> yeah. So tell me what steps you did take then. You took a bit of time off, didn't you? I took a little bit of time off. Um, I took time off in the summer. I had planned actually and taken six months off um, from the start of the summer break and not coming back to Christmas. I didn't do that in the end because what happened in the preceding three months to that, when we start managing my diary and we cancelled all my outside engagements, that actually I began to feel a little bit better in myself. 
um, I started taking, I'm very bad at taking like vitamins. I know what I need to do and sometimes I don't always do it. So I started, I respond quite well to seeing the numbers go up on things. So I stopped drinking coffee. Um, I don't know if there has been a massive impact from not drinking coffee, but I enjoy it seeing the number go, oh, 50 days without coffee. So I'm, I'm real one of them people that does, <laughs> you know, I, I am incentivized by like a little well done on your phone. You've reached a number. Yeah. Like, you know, I'm a sim- <laughs> simple human in that regard. Um, but I, I've now, st- I stopped taking codeine as well. So I would take sulfadine for the reoccurring headaches. But actually the sulfadine was actually making the headaches reoccur even more. You know, they were like rebound headaches I was getting. So I stopped taking sulfadine. Now I haven't drank for a month. So little by little, I'm still making changes. Yeah. I'm still trying to not be just content that I made enough changes with my diary that that's going to be enough to sustain me for life. And now I want to try and make decisions that will sustain me for the rest of my life so I can still continue to do the work that I love. When you took your time off, did you give yourself space or were you able to think about what you needed to change? Yeah, well, I did. Like I read some books and I read Siobhan Murray's book on on, on Borneo. And what's interesting is when I read that, I think that's when I realised that I wasn't depressed because obviously I was going back and forth in my own head. Am I exhausted? Am I unhappy? Am I depressed? And I wasn't, depression wasn't really sitting with me because I've experienced depression throughout my life, you know, and circumstantial depression sometimes you know, just because of life events and that. And I didn't feel like that because every other time that I felt depression, I felt unsafe. So in this moment, I didn't feel unsafe. I just felt like, oh, I can't do any of this. This Nothing matters. It was, you know, I was almost becoming a, a, a nihilist. What's it all for kind yeah. of feeling. Mm-hmm. Um, so I did take some time and I done a little bit of reading and I set some exercises and I spoke to my family and I spoke to my partner and, you know, I re-engaged again. I've always been in therapy on and off, but I re-engaged in a much more um, consistent way. And what did your family and your partner say about what they thought of you during that time? I mean, could they see where this was headed? Um, not not necessarily. Like, I mean, I've always been so high functioning and productive that it's not always easy to see when somebody that is that high it puts out that that amount of output that they are struggling and I hide it I hide it well. Senator Lynn Ruan from today with Claire Byrne. And in the afternoon it was great news for Irish films, racking up bucket loads of BAFTA nominations. Here's Ray Darcy. Now it's the good news story of the day. Indeed, it's the story of the day. Uh, the Irish have really swept the boards during the BAFTA nominations at lunchtime. The Banshees of Inish Sheeran got 10 nominations. Irish actors Paul Meskell and Darren McCormack were also nominated. Then on Colin Kuhn got two, one for Best Adapted Screenplay and Best Film Not in the English Language. And it doesn't stop there, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls. The Wonder, uh, which was written by Emma Donoghue, co-produced by Element Pictures and stars Neve Algar. We spoke to Neve about that. That's uh, nominated in the Most Outstanding British Film category, as was Matilda starring the absolutely amazing Alicia Weir and Alicia is on the line now. How are you doing Alicia? I'm good, thank you. Congratulations. <laughs> thank you. Because I've no doubt in my mind if Matilda the musical didn't have you it, we wouldn't be talking today well we wouldn't but it wouldn't have been nominated for a BAFTA because <laughs> you're so amazing in it. Uh, how did you find out? Um, so I was just like watching the TV with my sisters and my mum was in work and she texted me um, because I'm, I'm a bit sick today and then she forwarded on a text that she'd got from her friend and she forwarded on to me and my two sisters all at the same time and we all saw it and we just looked at each other. We were all as 
shocked as one another and we just started jumping up because we were so excited. Yeah. And look, they can't have the BAFTAs now with Matilda nominated without Matilda there. So so you have to go, don't you? Hopefully. Yeah. Uh, th- that's going to be very exciting. Uh, it's on the 19th of February. Yes. Yeah, yeah. So uh, this is, I, I'm so delighted for you, Alicia. Uh, and, and so well-deserved because uh, you're just so... I know, I'll say it again, you're so brilliant and, and anybody who hasn't seen it, um, it's, it, it, it's just amazing. Um, so it, it's, it's still in the cinema. It's not available on um, yeah. Netflix until later in the year, but we'll tell people when it's out. So are you going to celebrate tonight? I know you're feeling a little bit icky, but are you going to celebrate? Um, yes, because it's my sister's birthday on the weekend and we were meant to go out for dinner anyway, so yeah, um, yeah we, we will. Okay. So, uh, so if it wins, it'll be you and Emma Thompson up on the stage, making your acceptance speeches. Hopefully, <laughs> you could sing the speech. That that'd be a good idea, wouldn't it? You could sing the speech. Yeah, yeah. definitely. Yeah, yeah. Well, listen. Congratulations, Alicia. Hope you get well Thank soon. You. See you now. Bye, bye. Alicia Weir from Matilda the Musical. Then Ray spoke to on Colleen Kuhn, actress Carrie Crowley. Carrie Crowley's on the line, star of On Colleen Kuhn. Hello, Carrie. Congratulations. Hello, Ray. Oh, my God, isn't she just so cute? Oh, adorable. Yeah, I, yeah, oh. I don't know if you've seen that yet, but she is just amazing, Carrie. Just, I, but do you know what I love? You said that Matilda wouldn't have been the film it was yes, without her. Yeah. And On Colleen Kuhn wouldn't have been the film it was without our gorgeous Catherine Clinch. Like, we've got this new generation of beautiful performers coming mm. up. And, and they're not dissimilar. That's an Irish way of saying they're they're quite alike. <laughs> they're kind of alike. <laughs> so we, we we were talking uh, to Colin yesterday, uh, and I was saying I'll definitely be talking to you within the next seven days with the Baftas and the Oscars. Now the news of one got to him today, but we, we we hopefully we'll be talking to him again next week when the Oscars come out. So how did you? Were you hopeful? You must be. There's a there's a great there's a great buzz around on Colin Kuhn, isn't there? We're all yeah. We're always. Hopeful, but you never want to presume anything. Mm. And there are so many good films out there. But I was, I was delighted that we made the list. And that, like, initially I kind of said, with the Oscars, I said, oh, if we just made the top 15, I would be thrilled. Mm. And now, of course, with the Oscars, <laughs> I, I'd love if we made the top five. With the BAFTAs, yeah. it was just fantastic to see rolling in, to look at an Irish film up there on the best. And because it's Oscar Iga, because it's a film that's not in the English language. Yeah. I kind of think there's so much pride attached to that for all of us. Um, and it must be know, brilliant for you, Carrie. who's Irish. No, but it must and be brilliant for you. this is what you. amazes me about the film as well. People well, come up to me and they say, oh, I didn't think I'd understand it and I <laughs> understood it all. Because yeah. you sense it all. Mm. Do you know what I mean? Mm. It's the way the film is made anyway that you totally feel it. Um, and the dialogue is the dialogue people is are kind sparse. of chuffed with themselves when they come out of it. Yeah. Having understood it. Yeah. I, I was uh, trying to say through your chat, sorry about talking over you, um, that it's brilliant for you as well because you made a choice a good while ago that acting was the thing you were going to do. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. One of those, hang up the other boots and see will this work. Yeah, well, yeah. And I know it's a tough, it's a tough old career choice, but on days like today, Carrie Crowley. Well, I'll tell you what it is, Ray Darcy. <laughs> it's one of those things that you do because it's what you love. Mm. You know, if you can manage to do something that you love, how lucky are you? Yeah. And you worked with Colm. I haven't met him yet. I spoke to him on the phone. Uh, he's understated. Seems like a really lovely guy. 
I would say yes to both of those. Yes. Very understated. But everything that he says or everything that he talks about has a reason. Mm. You know, so even when we were filming, and Colin wouldn't say too much, but he might say, we'll, we'll do that again. And he might just have a really minimal um, explanation of what he wanted. But it worked. Oh, he's just amazing. Like to anybody out there listening who acts and who would like to work with a really interesting and gorgeous director. Just, yeah, keep yeah. him in your, in your yeah. sight line, in your eye line and try to get, you know, yeah, so, to get in the room with him sometimes. So the oh, Baf- he's amazing. And Fiona, they're just such a gorgeous couple. Um, the yeah, Baftas. The Baftas. It's a nice one the- to be part of, right? Carrie Crowley from The Ray Darcy Show. And in the morning, Brian McManus was talking to Ryan about coping with anxiety, creating a successful YouTube channel and how he ended up in Texas. Um, well, I'm from Galway, um, Renmore specifically. Um, abroad is in Texas. I moved over here about three years ago, just like a week before COVID started. Not ideal. And moved over here to really start growing the YouTube channel from here because a lot of the work that happens for us is based in America and this is very centrally located in Texas and fly back and forth from LA and New York and all that. Uh, and before you you got to making up, uh, creating a YouTube channel, what were you doing? Give us a sense of the career path, the trajectory you were on. Kind of started off a bit rough <laughs> after graduating during the recession and all of that and ended up moving to Malaysia for work. Um, ended up working in oil and gas as a design engineer, a composite design engineer for, for three years. Um, kind of wasn't wasn't all that passionate about that. So kind of started working on teaching myself how to animate and edit and all of that in my, my spare time to, to do what I'm ultimately doing now. Because you've talked in, in the past about uh, anxiety. T- t- talk to me a bit about that mm-hmm. and, and all the moving around career-wise and uh, internationally. Just after graduating in 2011, and I'm sure this is a story like nearly everyone in Ireland experienced back then, um, a lot of people moving away from Ireland and I just developed an, an anxiety disorder and all that. Um, kind of the way I dealt with that and tried to overcome it was running at everything that made me anxious because I felt like I can't, I can't control my life if I run at every single thing that made me anxious. And that kind of brought me to move into Malaysia and... I remember the reason I actually quit my job was because I realized I was anxious about downgrading my lifestyle. And I was like, can't have that. So I just mm. quit it and started the YouTube channel. You left mm-hmm. your job and then went full time with zero subscribers. That's a massive roll of the dice. What what, what drove that? <laughs> it's. I'd like to say it was bravery, but I think it was more desperation than anything, honestly. Um, I just wasn't happy in the job I was working in. And I, I saw the path forward with what was laid out in front of me with with just the oil and gas field just wasn't i knew i wasn't going to be happy long term i was like here i am i'm young i don't have any responsibilities right now i can i can afford to take a chance here and worst case scenario i come back in six months and i'm in another job i don't like so i think you can take you can afford to take some chances when you're really that age like early 20s and just try to to go for it but I didn't realise there was a GAA team in uh, Malaysia. <laughs> yeah, sure, we're all over the place at yeah. this point. I'm playing in Texas now with the, the Celtic Cowboys. Uh, but yeah, Orang Era in Malaysia was a big part of the life over there. It's always nice to have an Irish community when you, you land into a strange country like that.
Okay, well, let's get down to business then and, and talk a little bit about what you're doing now. Tell us about your YouTube channel. Well, it's called Real Engineering. Uh, I have a second channel called Real Science as well, but uh, my friend Stephanie is the producer on that. Uh, my main gig is Real Engineering, which I, I write for. It's, I kind of, I didn't like how engineering was being presented in, in online. I felt like there was, couldn't be more done there to kind of encourage younger people into it. And so my mission has always been to talk about engineering in a, in a passionate way and show people like what it actually does for the world and just like share my passion for it. And we've just kind of gradually been growing it over the years and putting more and more into the production and all that. So you felt that engineering, like for someone like me who doesn't understand engineering or isn't particularly going to run to the engineering section of the library, um, are you appealing to me or are you appealing to people who have a soft spot for engineering? Um, I try to make it as appealing as possible to everyone. Like I definitely think it's a little bit heavy on the physics and math and everything. So if that's not someone's favorite thing, they may not find it all that entertaining, but I try to teach science through like interesting, like machinery and things like that, that are appealing to a wider uh, audience. Like we did a video recently on the Supermarine Spitfire, one of the like iconic planes of the Battle of Britain and talked about how they squeeze the power out of the, the engine to try to make it as powerful as possible and all of that and a lot of engineering and science that goes into that so i think it is pretty broadly appealing to to a general audience too yeah because i i was watching your 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 video clip of the wind turbines and explaining the blades and the wind and the power and i i found it i found oh, it God. fascinating no i really did i'm not i'm i'm not plebossing you I, I i was kind of very engaged by it all Oh, the oh god was more to it. That's a very old video. All <laughs> oh, right, okay. <laughs> well, my uh, my my skills as an animator were uh, were still developing back then, um, and that was it was only me on the team back then. Now we have we have about ten employees working with us now, helping us. So the the production quality has improved a lot since those days. And Ryan asked Brian about another of Ireland's big YouTube success stories, Jack Septiguy. Yeah, I mean, Sean. Um, is doing amazing work. Like he's huge. He's one of the biggest people on the platform. Like it's very, I think a very different niche on YouTube gaming versus engineering, mm. but there's, there's a niche for nearly everything on, on YouTube these days. Like whatever you're passionate about, you can find an audience. It's one of the great things about YouTube, like a fairly large team at this point across the two channels. Um, just hired another full-time writer today. Um, we're constantly trying to grow and do more. So like, it's definitely the money to, to employ a, a team is there. Mm. Um, but yeah, I mean, it depends what you're doing. There's a lot of different ways to make money on YouTube, but if, if you have an audience, there's, there's a way to make money. All right. And um, in terms of the videos that you've been producing, what are the most watched, the most popular? What are people drawn to? Um, our most popular video right now is on a plane, um, the A-10 Warthog. It's kind of a bit of a, a meme on the internet, so that one did quite well. That's going on to, I think, has like 15 million views now. Oh, okay. um, I have, uh, we do a lot of aviation stuff because I studied uh, aeronautical engineering in UL and I'm just obsessed with planes. I just find planes really fun and interesting and those videos tend to do quite well. Um, our last video though, we're kind of moving into more documentary filmmaking type stuff instead of what we call it is a video essay where it's just me talking and with 
graphics over it, but we did a documentary there with Helion, which is a nuclear fusion startup based in Seattle, and put that up over Christmas, and it's got like 4 million views already, so a fairly wide range of stuff. Yeah, and the channel uh, subscribers-wise, what, what are you talking about? That's a number we don't really look at anymore, since it's not that important anymore, but... Oh. Uh, I think uh, it's like three point seven million, something okay. like that. Yeah, I, I, in my, in my innocence, I thought the subscriber numbers would be important to sponsors and people funding the channel. Uh, I mean, they are to a point. Um, the more important thing is like your average views, uh, more oh, so right, because okay. you could have, like, Jack has, Jack guy has like twenty two million. I think something like that, but uh, and I have three million, so like nearly ten percent, or just a little bit over ten percent of what he has. But we would pull similar views, but he uploads every single day, so there's a lot of different metrics there to to worry about. Yeah, of course. And what about the demographic? Can can you tell from the uh, from the research? Uh, can you uh, say drill into the numbers and find out who who's more inclined to watch you? Yeah, uh, I was actually laughing today because uh, I posted a thing on, on Twitter that kind of blew up of my demographics, um, asking my YouTube friends to try to beat uh, how many people at over the age of sixty five are watching their show because I have a very large audience of, of people over the age of sixty five. Okay, uh, so obviously the en- engineering. I think I think eight point six percent of our audience for the last year are over the age of sixty five. I think. Nearly twenty five percent are over the age of forty, so definitely an older audience. I'm I'm so happy to hear that the computers aren't just for the youngsters. <laughs> <laughs> that there's content being made for for oldies around the place is, is kind of reassuring, Brian. I'm delighted to hear that. And what what feedback are you getting in terms regarding the uh, the product that you're producing and the and the content you're producing? What do they What do people like? What are they responding to? Um. It's hard to know exactly when, like, you just put a video up and then the views come in. And I try not to look at the comments too much, but I think people have been responding very well to our last video just because it was kind of an, a sudden upgrade in our, our production quality, like, in going and interviewing people. Um, and it's just, it was kind of a culturally significant kind of news point with the, all the news with nuclear fusion uh, coming out around the same time. So people responded to that really well. Um, I'm personally very passionate just about climate change and the, the technologies we're developing to, to try and help solve that problem. And th- those videos do quite well as well. And I think people see the value in trying to encourage more people into to study in that field because it's like the biggest problem, one of the biggest problems that the world is facing right now. So, Yeah, that is amazing. And, and now, uh, what's life in Texas like? I've never been there. I've wanted to go there. What's it like there? Fantastic, really. Yeah. Um, yeah, great music scene. Um, I'm in Austin, Texas, um, so it's like a pretty nice little city, like walkable. I I live like two blocks from the river down here, and there's miles of of like river walks. Um, and like people here are really nice. There's lots of you know, like young, ambitious people, and the weather is nice for, I'd say nine out of 12 months in the summer it gets a bit too hot Brian McManus from the Ryan Tuberty Show and in the afternoon Claire called Joe on the live line from America with a very tragic story about the death of her father and her aunt and the loss of his precious hurling medals 
Well, first, Joe, just let me say thank you so much for for taking an interest in this okay. story. Um, it happened. Yes, it happened um, on Tuesday morning. Um, we had been over for my father's funeral. He's from originally from Galway, um, okay. and uh, he passed away November thirtieth here in Venice, Florida. And it was his his wish to be buried at home. So, okay. um, unfortunately, three days after he died, um, his sister Annie heard of his death. She also had a heart attack and died. Oh, so the family's been really gutted by two funerals um, in a very short period of time and two, okay. the loss of two siblings, two of the ten. Anyway, we were able to um, postpone our um, the funeral until January Friday, sorry, Saturday, January 14th in okay. Galway, and yeah. a whole slew of us came over from the U.S. Um, it was a great, great, great time. We celebrated his long life. He was 90. And um, it was more than we could have asked for. We okay. were absolutely over the moon. It was a send-off he deserved. And um, so we were heading back to the U.S. Um, um, I was taking my elderly mother, 85 years old, um, back on Tuesday morning, um, leaving from Dublin Airport. And we decided with all of the forecasts of black ice and fog and what have you, um, that it would be best to come up and stay in Dublin on Monday night at the um, Hilton Dublin Airport Hotel. Okay. Yeah. So we checked in Monday night, um, and then our flight was at 9 on Tuesday morning. So we arranged to, to get on the 6.20 a.m. shuttle, bus shuttle, from the airport to the hotel, and, which we did. Um, we checked out at 6.15, and from, I brought from, sorry, just to be clear, our from the pieces. From the hotel to the airport. Yes, from yeah, the hotel yeah, to the airport. Yeah, okay. Just, the, so, I, I, I'm just to explain to people, as most people know, travelling out of Dublin now, it's, that wasn't in your case. A lot of people you, uh, purchase parking in the local hotels. They all have shuttle buses because it's much cheaper than parking uh, in in and around Dublin Airport itself in the short-term or long-term car parks. And they, they all operate shuttle buses. A whole slew of them now. It's a new phenomenon. Every hotel operates two or three buses which fly up and down uh, to the airport. So you come out of the hotel with your bags. And what, yes. what happens? Yeah, so it was 6.15 a.m., so it was dark. And uh, we had one large suitcase, one rolling carry-on, one shoulder carry-on. And uh, my mother had a backpack, and I had a crossbody bag. So I kept the crossbody bag and my mother's backpack. But we put all the other three items in the in the the boot or the back of the the shuttle bus, which okay. was open. Um, there were two other bags in there, and um, we got on the bus. And when we got, and there was two other three other people on the bus when we got to the airport um, um, terminal two. Um, the Everyone got off ahead of us. We got we got out of the van um, and went and proceeded to ask the bus driver to open up the back again yeah, because we yeah. needed our luggage. And he said there was none in there. And I said well, I just put it in at six fifteen. Yeah. And we went. We looked. It wasn't there. So we went back to the hotel. And I, the, you know, and I don't normally think um, go to negative thoughts about people. But the only thing I could think of at that moment was, oh my god. It's been stolen. Okay. And um, so he took us back to the hotel, uh, went through it. Um, we didn't have enough time to really pursue it. The good news was my sister Julie and Fiona and my daughter Grace were staying at the hotel for a later flight. So they were able to pick up, and they met with the Garda, um, okay. and um, and they opened the case there. And the Garda was able to look at the closed-circuit TV footage 
and oh, um, they could, in fact, see that they could see me put the bags into the car, okay. literally. Into the bus, this is yeah. hard to believe. But as, as we were get, still getting into the van, on yeah. the bus on the other side, yeah. the guy was already taking it out of the back. So somebody was, as you're saying, and, somebody, somebody was lurking. What, waiting for yes. an opportunity, and he do, do you think it's a male, the individual? Uh, yes, my mother oh. thinks she saw the guy, um, okay, you know, so and uh, it was very dimly lit, yeah. So he was, he, but, he, but he, Joe, okay, yeah, but you know, Joe, the thing for us is that okay, there is you know, a lot of personal items that we lost, and yeah, um, things that can be replaced, but there were two things in there that are irreplaceable. And um, we are heartbroken. And that's why we wrote to you, because okay. um, one of the items was a picture, um, a framed picture that included roughly 25 of my dad's hurling mess wow. medals um, yeah. from his youth. Wow. Um, and it's, it was something that was put together by my grandmother. It had a picture of him in the middle of all the medals of when course. he graduated from NUI Galway. And then, of course, we had a bag from um, Kearney Funeral Directors in Galway yeah. um, that included our condolence book and oh, every gosh. single one of the condolence cards that we had received. And as you can imagine, we don't know a lot of these people, oh, you know, sorry. because they were neighbors that you know had grown up with my dad. So, you know, we were very interested to sort of see who, you know, read their messages, which were all just so kind. And and that's all we want back is that bag. And that picture. No questions asked. That's Claire on the live line with Joe Duffy. And on the Ryan Tuberty Show, a conversation about modern masculinity. Yeah, we were talking about Andrew Tate, the multimillionaire influencer dubbed the king of toxic masculinity. A lot of people have got in touch to talk about your children, their experience, experiences with him online, uh, but mostly just to see if there's any advice out there around it. And uh, some people giving that advice it, in the form of a theatre production called Manifest. It's a collaboration between Broken Talkers and the What Does He Need project. Uh, one of the artistic directors is Gary Keegan. Uh, Gary, good morning to you. Good morning, Ryan. How are you? Uh, great. Thank you for being with us. Uh, this is the com- the topic du jour, for sure. So tell us a little bit about what you're up to. Yeah, well, I guess um, just to give you a bit of background, yeah. um, as you said at the introduction there, so myself and Phelan, Broken Talkers, we've been working with uh, another artist called Fiona Whelan mm-hmm. and in partnership with Rialto Youth Project in Dublin 8 uh, on this project called What Does He Need, which is a long-term project. And it's basically exploring the ways in which men and boys are shaped by and influence the world around them, and in particular, but the influence of other men. So we've been working on this since 2018, this project. Very uh, ahead of the curve, by the way, in my opinion, the 2018, that's what, five years ago, and to be uh, thinking of Mm. it then. And, And this world is evolving so fast and of course everything is uh, the in, in on, on your phone now. So, um, are you nervous for the young boys and men of this generation, or do you think everything's being a little overhyped? I, I, I don't think it's been overhyped. I think the conversation is critical. To be honest, I was just listening to your last uh, your last guest there, mm-hmm. and um, just listening to the sheer numbers of you know the power of that medium in terms of millions and the influence um, you know for better or worse, that this uh, this medium has and is having. So I don't think necessarily 
I, I don't think necessarily we're being over dramatic or blowing it out of proportion. I think, um, you know, you mentioned that individual who was in the media in the last couple of weeks. Mm. Um, he's obviously at the, you know, the very sharp end of this conversation. And I think, you know, we're all learning a lot. We weren't too familiar with him until a couple of weeks ago, but we're learning a lot and we're learning fast about, you know, his his appeal. And we're getting a lot of feedback from teachers and from um, from from young people as well, mm. uh, you know the fact that he is part of the conversation. Um, but you know there are other there are other themes that we're exploring as well. You know around mental health, around the suppression of vulnerability, um, and I think they are they are conversations that need to be continually teased out. I think in this day and age. Yeah. Uh, the, the the specific dilemmas that crop up again and again. I was struck by the fact that WhatsApp groups. Of all things, um, I'm going to give you a, a, a little time just to tell me about that because uh, there are very few people around the place who aren't in a WhatsApp group, really. If, sure. if, uh, so what is it about those groups that can cause a difficulty? Yeah, I think it's something like because we've been running these workshops for a number of years with groups of men, it is something that has come up a lot when we when we begin to talk about how, how you would um hypothetically, you know, speak out against something. And the example of the WhatsApp group is something that's come up a lot. So you might be in a friends group or a, cl- a, sports, gr- um, a sports club group or something like that. It is, um, it is something that connects you socially to a group of friends. It is v- very important to stay connected. But if, let's say, for example, as we have heard on numerous occasions, that uh, certain individuals within the group start, you know, speak in a certain way, misogynistic, sending inappropriate stuff or whatever it is, how do you speak up and what do you risk if you speak up? Do you risk losing your friends? Do you risk being, you know, alienated? So the the feedback that we were getting from the men that we were doing the workshops with is there is oftentimes a reticence to actually stand up and say, you know, I don't appreciate that or, you know, I wish you'd stop because you just get, you know, you just get stick. Well, that's Gary Keegan talking to Ryan Tuberty in the morning and Manifest is at the Project Arts Theatre from February 23rd. And that's it for Playback Daily, so mind yourself till next time.